We are in the, the Advent season, Christmas time, thinking about Jesus coming to the earth. And so we're going to talk today about the promises that God has given us. Uh, God keeps his promises. We're going to start in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. We will um, be there just a little bit later on, but wanted to start here. Isaiah 9, it says this, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let me pray over these verses this morning. God, we come to you and thank you for your gift of Christ. And God, I thank you that you're a God who keeps his promises. And when you prophesy something, it'll happen. When you promise us something, we can bank on it. I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us with, with these thoughts today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's a story that is told about a man that near the end of his life, he was, he was getting sick. And he called his wife in to, to his hospital room. Now this man, ever since he was a young man and first got married, every time he got paid, he would take $20 and he would slip it under his mattress. Every time. And he was now... Um, old and, and retired, and he still would be putting that $20 under his mattress. And he brought his wife into the hospital room and said, I need you to make me a promise. And she says, what promise? And he says, I want you to promise me that when I'm dead, you will go in and you'll take all that money under the mattress and you'll somehow get it into the casket with me so that I can try to take it with me. <laughs> promise me you'll do that. She said, okay, I promise I will do that. Eventually this man passed, and so this woman went to fulfill her, the promise. She went into the bed, got all this money, went to the bank, deposited it, and then wrote a check and put it in the casket so that he would have all the money in there with him. Um, that lady made a promise to her husband. And she kept the letter of that promise, maybe not the spirit of the promise. But, you know, we live in a world of, of broken promises. Um, that's why we get so irritated at politicians, right? They will say almost anything to get elected, and then they don't fulfill their campaign, what, promises, right? I promise I will do this, and we say we know that's not the case. When someone says they'll do something or not do something and they break their word, we know, just inherently, we know that's wrong. We, teach, I mean, we don't have to teach kids this, right? You, teach, you tell your kid, we're going to go to Disneyland tomorrow. And then the next day you say, oh, you know what, we're not going. What do they say? That's not fair. You what? You promised, right? They know that that's wrong when, when there's a promise that is broken. Promises are important. 
And the great thing about our God is not only is he a giver of promises, God is a keeper of promises. When he says something, it's going to happen. And it's going to happen as he says, I mean, what he says is going to happen is going to happen, just like he says it. And during this time of year, we hear many of the promises Jesus gave. We might call them prophecies, but really they're promises God gave about the Messiah. And he started in the Old Testament early on. Started in Genesis 3, saying, I'm, he told the serpent, you're going to bite his heel, but, I, but he is going to crush your head. It is a promise. Someone is coming to break evil. From the very beginning, he gave promises of a coming Messiah. And so look at, let's look at some of the promises God made regarding the Messiah and the prophecies. And let's see why they're important. I'm going to try to move fast through these. So you're blanks. You might have to fill them in uh, pretty, pretty quick. But uh, we'll see how we can get through. So first of all, we see that God promised a Messiah from a virgin birth. Isaiah um, uh, this is in Isaiah 7. Isaiah had a... Uh, he, he was with the king of Judah named Ahaz. And Ahaz was worried that the king of Israel, the tribes to the north, and the king of Aram would, would join forces. They would come down upon Jerusalem and destroy him. And so Ahaz was afraid of that. And that was not God's plan. So God sent Isaiah to Ahaz to tell him, listen, God is not going to allow this to happen. And he says, Isaiah, or he says Ahaz, here's what I want you to do. Choose anything you want. Choose any sign that you want so that you will know that God will not allow these two kingdoms to come and destroy you. Choose anything you want. And Ahaz says, no. I don't think I will. He refused to choose something. He, choose, he refused to choose any sign. And so this is what Isaiah said in Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He says, you're not going to choose Ahaz. God will choose for you. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, this was a double prophecy. In a sense, there was a prophecy for Ahaz to show him that God was going to save him. But there was a broader, more important sense of this prophecy that God was going to send a Messiah. And this Messiah was going to be born of a virgin birth. And we see that this is fulfilled. This is fulfilled in Matthew 7. I'm sorry, Matthew 1. 22 through 25, and it says this, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by, by the Lord through the prophet. And that prophet was Isaiah. That is to say, Behold, the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But listen, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 
God promised a Savior would come, but he promised that a Savior would come in a way that no other Savior had come. He would be different than the judges of the Old Testament. He'd be different than Joshua, and and he'd be different than the, the righteous kings or the prophets of old. He would be different. He would come in a different way. And he said that this is a supernatural way. It's not going to be a human way. It's going to be a way where a woman will give birth without having sex with a man. She will be a virgin. And this is the only something that God could do. It's a foundational truth of our Christian faith to believe in the virgin birth. That is to say, if you say, I believe all this about Jesus, but I really don't believe he came from a virgin. I believe really it was Joseph and Mary, and they did things naturally, and Jesus just came. If, if you do not hold to the virgin birth, you stand outside of Orthodox Christianity. The very beginning, a creed, the Apostles' Creed, affirms that early, early on it was affirmed that Jesus was born of a virgin. And so why is the virgin birth so important? Why is it a line of demarcation between those who are Christian and those who who are not? Why is the virgin birth so important? And it's so important because, listen, Jesus is fully God and fully man, and that means he is the perfect intermediary. Let me talk about what that means. Jesus was not conceived the human way. He did not inherit the sinfulness of humanity. And and I don't understand how it all happened. I don't know the mechanics of it or the science of it, whatever you want to say. But somehow, God was able to, with Mary's... um, understanding of it. He came to Mary and he says, the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And she says, I'm your servant. And he, he somehow created life in Mary that did not have the, the taint of sin that comes through the seed of Adam. And so when Jesus was born, the second person of the Godhead who would who had been in existence from all eternity, took on a second nature. He was fully God, and he'd been fully God for all of past time. And once he was conceived, he took on a second nature of humanity. And he wasn't half man, half God, like some Greek Hercules. He was fully God he was fully man. Colossians 1.19 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. All the fullness of the Father dwelt in Jesus. Everything that makes God, God, dwelt in Jesus. He didn't lose anything by coming in human form. He was not diminished. He took on a second nature. He humbled himself by becoming his creation, but he wasn't diminished in deity. So if he's fully God and the Father is fully pleased with that, that is a good thing because he is fully God and fully man. 
Fully God means he does not have any sin. And fully human means he understands what we go through as humans. He understands temptation. He understands when we are weak and it's hard to follow the Father. He understands that. In fact, Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But, but instead, he says, we, we have one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. So he has two natures. He is fully God, so he can be without sin. And we're going to talk why that's important. And he's fully human, so he understands what it means to be us. So he's not a distant God who just doesn't really care about his creation and never comes down and, inter- and interacts with us. But instead, he is, he is, he's been human and walked among us and understands us. And Jesus didn't get rid of that second nature once he rose to heaven. He took on a second nature, and he will have that second nature for all eternity. He humbled himself, but he humbled himself forevermore, being fully God and taking on a human nature. But that's good news for us. So God made a promise to bring a Messiah through the virgin birth. And that's important because God keeps his promises. And he gave us a Messiah who could redeem us. God could only redeem what he was. He didn't redeem the angels. Angels are not redeemable. Because Jesus didn't come having an angel nature. He came as a human nature in order to redeem us. And so that is why it's important. The virgin birth is critically important because if he didn't come as fully God and fully man, he couldn't redeem us. And if it was just a regular birth, then he would have just been a regular man, tainted with sin, and he could not redeem us. He he would just be another sinner looking for a Savior, just like we are. And so it's critically important The culture wants to tell you that you can believe in any Jesus you want to believe in. They may not even say Jesus, just any God you want. But they might say, okay, you can believe in Jesus, but I believe in Jesus that was a really good teacher. Or a really good rabbi. Or just a really good example. Just some guy who was just a good example and died for someone else. And I'm saying that kind of Savior doesn't save. Just a guy who's a real good teacher can't save anybody, can't even save himself. Scripture says we need somebody to stand in our place to, 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 to save us. But Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, becomes the perfect intermediary between us and God. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. You could see, think of it this way. I'm not sure it is this way, but you can think of it this way. When I go to God and I want to talk with him, I, I go to Jesus, who is fully God, but he's also man, so it's a, it's a human talking to another human. And then Jesus can turn and take that request, and as God, he can go to God and take that request, God to God, because he is this perfect intermediary 
between the two, two people who are separated by sin. And Jesus becomes the perfect intermediary. It's a critically important that God fulfilled his promise of a Messiah coming from a virgin. At the same time, he tells Ahaz that he would give virgin birth. Micah also lets Judah know that God's not done working in their midst, and he gives them a promise of a coming king, and he says God promised a Messiah born in Bethlehem from Micah 5.2. It says, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. God says this little city of Bethlehem that was small in number and tiny, just a dot on the map, was going to be great for his kingdom. That the Messiah was going to come from that. That was fulfilled in Luke 2, 4 through 7, that Joseph came from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. And, and we might remember that story, that Joseph and Mary, when God called them, were in Nazareth. And God says, I'm going to have my Messiah be born in Bethlehem. Now, that's 90 miles away, which isn't much for us, but for two young kids who are pregnant and only thing to have to move isn't a U-Haul, it's a donkey. That's a little more difficult to get from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. But God promised the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so why is this important? Well, it's to help us understand that the Messiah is connected with David, which we'll talk about in just a minute. He's connected with David, and Bethlehem was David's city. I won't won't read these verses for time, but 1 Samuel 26 talks about how this Bethlehem was David's city. Saul was king. Nope. Yeah, Saul was king, and he disobeyed God, and Samuel, he told Samuel, go find a new king. So Saul went down to Bethlehem, to Jesse's house, and he went through his sons, and he says, nope, that's not king. This guy's not king. This guy's not king. Went through all the sons. None of them are king. And he says, is there any other sons? Because God says these guys aren't it. And they said, well, there's David, but he's the youngest. We didn't even bother calling him. He's out doing sheep work. He's a shepherd. He says, bring him in. He brings him in and he says, this guy is going to be king. And he becomes one of the most important kings in, in Israel's history. And so Bethlehem becomes important. It's David's city. And he wants to make sure that there's a connection between his Messiah and David. In addition to making the connection to, to David, Bethlehem means house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. And Jesus in John 3, uh, sorry, 635 says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. God's bread of life is going to be born into the house of bread, is what it's saying. And this is important because God says, I'm going to make sure my Messiah is born there. But it didn't look like anything was going to... How, how in the world was that going to happen? And God moved Augustus Caesar, the ruler of the entire world, and he said, you know, you should probably count the people in your kingdom. Now, we don't have that discussion, but in Luke 2, it says, Augustus thought 
there should be a census and everyone should go to his hometown. And I'll probably talk about this in a couple weeks, but the whole world at that announcement got turned upside down. And people were packing up here and moving here and, and moving all over. Everyone had to go to their hometown and to the tribe, their tribe's hometown, and that's where Joseph had to go. And God moved the whole world, moved the ruler of the world to make sure that this promise was going to happen. And here's the deal. When, when you feel like, I'm not sure how this is going to happen. You know, God told me that this promise is going, you know, to, to be there. We read in Scripture, and He says, this promise, I know this is, this is for me. But I don't know how in the world God can make this happen. He can, he can move the entire world and will move the entire world to make sure His Word will come about the way he says it. We can trust his promises. And most of the time, he doesn't have to move the whole world (laughs) to fulfill his word. He just speaks and it happens. We can trust him. You can read scripture and many, many of those promises God gave us and they're for today. And when we read those, we can be assured God will show up and move anything that needs to be moved in order to fulfill his word. So yes, God gave a promise that the the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He gave a promise that the Messiah would be born from the land of da- uh, from the line of David. First Chronicles seventeen, um, eleven through fourteen. Again, just write that down. But essentially, it's the promise God gave David that one of your descendants, one of your sons, will come, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will be king forever. He will sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. It was a promise of a king, an eternal king. And he promised that. And we see, if you read the, read the genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, that Jesus was born, no matter which way you look at it, Jesus was born through David's line. God fulfilled his promises. And why is that important? Because Jesus is the king and he will reign forever. Jesus is going to reign forevermore. He is the Savior, He's the King of creation, and He will rule forever and ever. We just read Isaiah 9 that says the government will rest on His shoulders and He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And it says there'll be no end to the increase of His government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And you can read in, in Revelation twenty two sixteen at the end of the book. You can turn to the end of the book. See how it turns out. It's okay to do that. And he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus is the king, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you want it to be the case or not. He is king, and he will rule. He is ruling now, and he will rule forevermore. And the scripture says that every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. 
And if you do it now and proclaim him Lord and king of your life, you'll give eternal life. But if you die rejecting him, you will still bow and call him king right before you're sent to eternal punishment. But every, every tongue will call him Lord because he is the king. And the question is, is he reigning in your life right now? That's the question. Have you surrendered to his kingship now? God promised a Messiah who would be king from the line of David, who would reign forever. But God also promised that his Messiah would suffer, that he'd be pierced and scourged. Isaiah 53, 5, it says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And when we read the last days of Jesus, we read that, this, that, the, that as Messiah he fulfilled this prophecy. We read in Matthew 27, 26, Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Scourging was a torturous beating that left people mostly dead, if not killing them. And if that didn't kill them, they would take them and nail them to boards until they slowly died of asphyxiation on the cross. Romans had perfected this slow, torturous death as punishment. And Luke 23, 33 says, When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. And just to make sure that they, they drive a nail through, really it was the wrist. They call it the hands, but probably it was right here at the wrist where the bones could hold up the body. And through his feet, and after piercing that way, to make sure he was dead, they pierced his side. It says in John 19, 32 through 34, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with them. But coming to Jesus, when they saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Probably the, the fluid that was around the lungs or the heart because he died of asphyxiation. It is, it, Jesus fulfilled the suffering servant prophecies that we find in Isaiah. God says, I'm going to send you a chosen one. I'm sending you the Messiah, and he's going to be king, but he's also going to be pierced and scourged. And why is that important? Why did God promise that that would happen? Listen, because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. The truth is, we deserved to be beaten to death for our sins. We deserve to have a torturous death because of our, our sin against, against God. And in God's economy, when someone sins, something has to die. I don't know why that's how God set things up. And in Hebrews it says that the blood of animals would never, ever pay 
the penalty for human sins. It was temporary. It was just noticing that we needed something more. And our Messiah, who was fully God and without sin, could be an innocent substitute because he was also fully human. And he could die for humans and stand in their place. And because he's fully God, he could stand for every single human. And he could take on human sin. And literally, the scripture says, became sin and die for us. In fact, Isaiah 52, it says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face was despised, and we did not esteem him. Listen, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, and yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and his scourgings, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God laid every one of our sins upon Christ and said, that sin is guilty and it deserves death. And God promised a Messiah to come and say, I'll take that sin for you. And so all of our sins laid upon him, and he was nailed to the cross. And Second Corinthians, uh, sorry, Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, When you were dead and your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, flesh, he made you alive with him, having forgiven us, look at the word, all your transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It says you owed a debt to God in your natural state. When you were born, you were born with sin injected into you. And it separated us from God. And there was a debt that we owed that we could never repay. And Christ says, give me that debt. I'll repay it. And, and he was nailed to the cross. He was scourged and pierced. And all our sins were laid upon him so that we could be forgiven. That's why it's important for the promise of God to say the Messiah is going to be pierced and beaten. Because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And not only that, God promised the Messiah was going to be pierced and beaten and, and die for us. But he also said the Messiah is going to raise from the dead. He promised life from death. It says in Psalm 16, 10 through 11, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me 
the path of life in your presence. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. We might say, well, that's not a prophecy, that's a psalm. But when we read Peter in Acts chapter 2, and it's a long passage, so you might just read through it. But he says, David said, you wouldn't abandon my place in Sheol, the place of the dead. But he says, David's dead. David's dead and buried. You can go to his tomb, and David's kind of decaying there. But there's one better, one from David's line. The king, who once he was pierced, beaten, and died, he was not abandoned to the place of the dead. And he rose from it. And because of that, when, because Jesus rose from the dead, we can too. And that's why, this, why it's important that, Jesus, that, that God promised the Messiah raised from the dead because Jesus rose from the dead to purchase a place in heaven for us. He rose from the dead to purchase a place in heaven for us. It's important to know that Jesus died for our sins, but it's also incredibly important to know that he rose up and death did not beat him and that he is alive now. Colossians 2, 12 through 14, we just read most of that, but if it started out by saying, having been buried with him by baptism, in which also you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And then he goes into talking about the, the death that he died. But essentially he's saying, if you die with Jesus, and you say, I want Jesus' death to pay for my sins, then just like Jesus rose from the grave, you will too. That whatever we see Jesus happening to Jesus, that he rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven, that's our promise if we trust in Christ. He paid the penalty for our sins in his death, in his resurrection. He made sure there was a way for us to enter into eternity with the Father forevermore. John 14, he says, so that wherever I am, you may be also. That's what heaven is. Romans 8, 33 and 39 says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? If God says you are innocent because Jesus took all your sin, who in the world could say you're guilty? right? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who will also intercede for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? No. Will distress? Nope. Persecution, famine, nakedness? No. Peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But he says this, but in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who love us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Amen. It is only through Jesus' death and resurrection that we can beat death. And if we placed our faith in him, nothing can separate us from his love. If we've trusted his work on the cross, and if we've been transformed by his grace in our lives, we will never, ever taste death. This body may expire, and if the Lord tarries, it will expire. But who we are will never taste death if, we're one of, if we've trusted in Christ. We will cease existence here and immediately, instantaneously be in the Father's presence. To start living like we have never lived before. I've said in many funerals, we believe we're living in the land of the living on our way to the land of the dead. But Scripture says we're living in the land of the dead on our way to the land of the living. This world is marked with death and suffering and pain and sin. And one day we'll break free from it and spend eternity in heaven if we've trusted in Christ, if, his, if we're trusting in his work on the cross and trusting in his resurrection. I'll have you bow your heads and think through this. How would God have you respond? Maybe today you don't have Christ in your life and you want the assurance that I'm going to be with Christ forever, that I'll never taste death. You don't have to worry about death. Maybe you're working to be saved. You're saying, if I'm just good enough, I just want my good to outweigh my bad. I'm a pretty good person, and I'll just do a few more good things, and then God will really be happy with me. That's a terrible way, terrible burden in your life. And it will never lead to salvation. It is saying, I can't be good enough. But Christ came and paid the penalty for me. Maybe you need to trust in that today. Or maybe you're a believer and you just need to rejoice again at Christmas time, remembering all these fantastic promises. They weren't just about a little baby who was born in a barn and laid in a trough, more like a cave born in a cave and laid in a feeding trough wrapped in rags. It's about the beginning of salvation, that that child would grow up and pay the penalty for our sins, and that's why we rejoice at this time. And maybe the bustle and hustle of Christmas is that you forgot, had you forget about the, the true meaning of Christ's coming. Heavenly Father, we come to you and ask today that you would just stir in our hearts. However you would have us respond, I pray that you would encourage us that way, that we'd have the boldness to respond. God, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, God, that they would not leave this building before they turn their life over to you. Let them have the courage to do that. Let them know 
the joy and peace and life that comes through that decision, that the burden can be lifted. Lord, if there's a believer here who's struggling with the joy in their relationship with you, I pray that they would be energized today and remember how much you truly love us to send us your son, that, this, that salvation was your idea. You gave us the gift of your son. He paid the penalty for us, and all we have to do is receive it. Let us praise you for that. Move in our hearts now, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.